much. I say this every time I get to come to Therese. I think this is about my fourth time in some capacity, whether it be revival or seminars, but it's nice to come back here because it does feel like a home away from home. I'm kin to about half of you. My wife, being one of those Claytons from this area, is kin to the other half, and only half of you claim us. I guess it'll uh, you'll have to figure out which half you want to claim, but we really do feel a kindred spirit with you, not because we're related by blood, but because we know that we are related through the blood of Jesus Christ. We know that Theresa Baptist Church, we hear that Theresa Baptist Church, we see that Theresa Baptist Church is on mission doing the same thing we're trying to do. You're just trying to propagate and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and grow Christians closer and closer to Christ. And so we are just uh, thrilled to be a part of this this week uh, as our sister church on the other end of the county. And I just can't thank you enough for having me out. Not to mention the fact that we absolutely love Herbert. I've told you this before. He is one of my favorite people in the world to pick on, but in fact, I have modeled my entire life and ministry after Herbert. You know, I told y'all when I came last time, back in 2011, I even went out and got me a big red truck just so I could look more like Herbert. I am actively working on the hairstyle that looks more like Herbert. I will get there sooner or later when I have thought as hard as he has and burnt the the hair right off the top. But uh, I'll tell you something, you've got a gem in Herbert, as much as I pick on him. And this is not to insult anyone else or any other minister, it is to compliment your pastor. I can go to UNC Memorial in Chapel Hill, Wake Med in Raleigh, I can go to Person Memorial, I can even end up over there. Which one is it, Duke Regional or Duke Durham Regional? I mean, they keep changing the name. One. I, I remember it being Durham General. Y'all remember that? But I can run into him at Duke Regional, at Duke Medical Center. I run into your pastor at almost every medical facility I go to. He is one of the most visiting pastors in the world, and I've always said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I'm telling you, your pastor cares for you. Uh, he runs his wheel, wheels off visiting you and loving on you, and you should be grateful for that. And honestly, even though I say I've modeled myself after Herbert jokingly, there's some truth to that because I have seen the great success he's found in loving people with all his heart and showing that in a tangible way. I run into him or his truck everywhere I go. You see, you can recognize his truck very easily. It is a big red truck. It's usually taking up two spaces at most places I go. I'm kidding. He parks fairly well most of the time. But the way I picked that truck out is that big icon that he had put on the back, that big white turkey. And I don't know who did that, but that's a pretty good likeness of you, Herbert. I I like that. Uh, But I see him everywhere, and I certainly enjoy coming and being a part of anything that he or you guys are a part of as we share the gospel of Christ. Uh, When Herbert called me this time, though, a few months ago, he's like, Listen, brother, I want you to pray about something and look at your calendar. We're going to be doing a, a revival in the fall, and we'd love to have you come out. I said, Well... I'd like to, but Herbert, how many times are you going to kill these people so i got to come out there and revive them? I mean, you got to give them a break. No, I'd, listen, the reality is, I know, as I've already said, you are an active church. You are a church doing the right things. But let's be honest, we all need revival on occasion. In fact, we need it fairly often. Why? Because we're leaky vessels. We're just like an old feed bucket you put water in to take out to the chickens or the cows or whatever. that has got just a tiny hole in it. It'll hold water, but eventually it just sort of leaks out. And that's just like us, isn't it? We know the right things to do. We know what we ought to be doing. We know that we should be on fire for the Lord all the time. But life happens, doesn't it? And that little old hole in the bottom of the bucket just starts leaking out just a little bit. So we come to get filled up. And I know that each and every one of you need at least some level of revival this week because I know I do. 
And I pray that as I stand up here and open God's Word, that I'll get it just as much as you do, if not more. Because I'm selfish. I want as much revival as I can get a hold to. But let me just say this. Many of you have known for months and months that revival was coming. But you've already allowed better offers to slip in. And you know, I'm not going to be there that night. I'm not going to be here that night. Let me tell you something. There's no better offer. I am nobody. For all the things that Herbert just said about me, I am nobody but a knuckle-headed country boy from the middle of nowhere. But I love the Lord. And I believe that this is His infallible, inerrant Word. And I'm going to be preaching it with all my heart all week long. And so let me just say this. Not trying to pressure anybody, because if you come pressured, you probably won't get anything out of it. But I'm just going to say there is no better offer. Whatever plans that you have made that will interfere with revival, change them. Be in revival, not just to be in a set of services or, as was already said this morning by Corey, to just fill your calendar, but be here because the Word of God is going to be broken and we need revival. Would you agree with that when you look at the 6 o'clock news in the evenings? Would you agree when you look out over the landscape of our country and what's happened just in this past week that we need revival? Then be here and be a part of it. And I will dare you to do this. I'll guarantee you everybody in here has got at least one friend or at least one person that fibs and says they're your friend, right? Grab them by the ear, drag them in these doors. Not because I'm a nobody again. Don't brag. You've got to hear this guy. I am nothing but because God's Word will be spoken and it will transform your life and bring revival. And this is the only hope this nation has, is this Word that I will be reading this week. So grab somebody and bring them to revival. But what is revival? We sort of need to define what we're doing here. Revival, according to the dictionary, is to revive. That makes sense. What does that mean, though? It means to breathe life into the dead or the dying. But in order for us to do that, we've got to know that which is dead that which needs a new breath of life. And so we're going to identify that this week. But I tell you, as a visiting preacher, one of my biggest concerns is misspeaking or making a mistake. You know, visiting preachers can make some doozies, can't they? I'm sure y'all have had guys here, because, I mean, I know who y'all have had to preach here over the years. Y'all have had guys here that just made royal mistakes while they were visiting, right? This young man had come down from up north, fresh out of seminary, to preach in one of these southern churches, and he was going to be with his brothers and friends there and preach revival. And it went pretty well on Sunday morning, went pretty well on Sunday night. He went home feeling pretty good about himself as a visiting minister. They had put him up in a bed and breakfast, so he gets up that morning, and he's like, oh, I'd done pretty good, didn't I, Lord? Gets him a cup of coffee, he's sitting out on the front porch. And he looks across the way, there's a beautiful little grove of trees, and then there's one little clearing, and he sees something that starts to bother him. He says, why are those two guys out there throwing dirt over in that big old hole? And so he starts to watch him, and he's drinking his coffee, and he starts to really get bothered in his spirit. He said, this just ain't right, but I'm not going to do anything about it. It's not my business. I'm going to go on inside and sort of get freshened up a little bit. So he goes in, but he just won't leave him alone. He said, I don't know who it is they're burying over there, but there ain't a single observer. There's nobody over there to even say a prayer for this fellow, whoever it was. I mean, even if this was a homeless fellow or somebody that was mean as a snake, they deserve something. So he puts on his blazer, he grabs his Bible, he walks across the street, and he looks at these two fellows. He said, fellas, listen, I don't want to interrupt your work, but, and I don't know what's going on here or why there's nobody else here, but can I say a few words? Sure. Go ahead. So they lean up on their shovels like good state workers. I mean, I, I, <laughs> forgive me. No, they're leaning up on the shovels, just relaxing. If you're a state worker, I know you do work occasionally. Please forgive that. <clears throat> they're leaning up on the shovels, and this man starts preaching real light and low. And then he just starts letting it rip. Fire and brimstone preaching from the bottom of his heart over this hole. 
And these guys are saying, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, every now and then. And he just gets to going more. You know, when you say amen, it's like saying sick them to a rabid dog. It makes a preacher just want to go that much harder. So I'm just going to tell you, if you do that this week, just expect it to get louder and louder because I'm going to go right with you. But they're enjoying this thing now, and he gets done, and he prays the most eloquent prayer ever prayed in the history of prayers. And he walks away, and before he walks away, he said, look now, I'm going to be in revival down here at the First Baptist Church of the Flying Tambourine all week long. So y'all come and join me any night, 7.30. As he walks off, pretty proud of himself, thinking, I've done a good thing now. Them guys look at themselves and said, what do you think of that? He said, I don't know, Sam. He said, you know, I I really am amazed at that guy, and I'm going to hear that revival, because if he can get that excited over a septic tank, what's he going to do about revival? (laughs) I don't want to make that kind of mistake this week. I want to tell you what's dead and how to fix it. Because I want you to understand, just like in the Bible, when we read Hosea 13, Ezekiel 37, John 11, any of the Gospels or Revelation, when it comes to God, dead ain't dead. When it comes to our God, death is not final. Do you believe that? He raised the dead so many times. He was raised from the dead Himself by the power of life and love as God breathed life back into His very own Son. We know that death is not final, but I am going to submit to you this week that we have killed at least five beloved comrades, and they need to be brought back to life. They need to be revived. And it's only going to happen if you tune in and you do something. You see, only God can truly bring revival, but I know God wants to bring revival. But I know also that in this world right now, in the physical realm and the spiritual, that it's you that He's counting on to be His instruments. So I'm going to encourage you this week to know the truth of that which is dead and be willing by your own actions to breathe new life into our fallen comrades. But as we begin, let me just identify so that we can properly bury those five fallen comrades. And let me just tell you about these five things. They never hurt a soul. Never. You hear that at funerals oftentimes. Oh, he never hurt a soul. You sit there and listen to them preach about folks sometimes and think, man, that ain't the guy I knew. That's funny, isn't it? You know, we tend to be, as preachers, try to bring out all the good stuff. But I can just tell you about these five. They never hurt a soul. In fact, they were pillars of the early church and of a fledgling nation 238 years ago. They were those who guided us in all truth, protected us from God's wrath, and brought upon our nation and the church blessings that we cannot even begin to count if we were to try to sit down and do so. And yet, over the years, especially in our country, especially in recent times, these five became old-fashioned and outdated. And so we neglected them, we forgot to nourish them, and they died a cruel death of starvation. Because, folks, there is one thing that is true about life. The only thing that lives is what you feed. The only thing that lives is what you feed. And you can't skip feedings. I think about it sometimes. My wife is like Ellie Mae. I don't know if y'all know her, but my wife is the most precious thing that ever happened in my life besides salvation. But the woman loves animals better than she loves to eat. It's the truth. We got chickens and ducks and goats and rabbits and dogs and cats. We even have these little marsupial things like they're called sugar bears, but they're sugar gliders from Australia. Finally, we got rid of those things, thank the Lord. But she'll get up every morning, early, 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 and say her prayers, go through her prayer lifts, have her devotion, and then she goes to feed them animals. Well, sometimes I'll get up right at that time when she's going to feed the animals, and I'm like, Sugar, you need to feed me too. Don't, don't go feed them animals. 
She said, I can't miss feeding them. They expect to be fed right now, and they do. Those chickens are so trained by this woman, they will come to the back door of the patio if she don't come feed them at a certain time. Now, y'all might not believe me, but I ain't lying in God's pulpit. These chickens peck on the back door until she comes out to feed them. And then she holds up bread about this high, and they will jump and take it from her hands like a dog. Ain't it true, Donald and Debbie? They've seen it. It's the craziest thing I've seen. I said, either the chickens are retarded or that woman's the, the chicken whisperer. I don't know what it is. But they expect to be fed, and if we don't feed them, guess what? We have to eat them. And that ain't happening with my wife's pets, so you have to feed something in order for it to live. But these things that we're going to talk about died a cruel death of starvation because we forgot to nourish them. We forgot to feed them. And when I say we, I ain't speaking French. I'm talking about me and you. We, the Christian church, forgot to feed righteousness, which is dead and gone. And we either need to breathe new life into it this week, or we need to bury it. Because righteousness or holiness is no longer in existence. We killed it because we killed restraint. I want you to think on that one. Restraint. That able to control yourself feeling. Restraint that keeps you from doing that which is wrong. That died, perished, because we murdered respect. There is no more respect in this nation. It's not taught in our homes, so how do we expect it to happen anywhere else? Nobody respects anyone. This thing about kids respecting their elders, that's a joke. It's dead and gone. We might as well either shoot it in the foot, bury it, or breathe new life into it. Well, that's dead because responsibility has passed away. Why? Because we just didn't feed it. There is no such thing as personal responsibility anymore, even though this book teaches it from cover to cover. Think about that. You know, growing up, my dad would tell me, listen, if you've done something wrong, I am going to cook your ham. Just know that. You ain't getting by with it. See, my dad didn't do this whole time out thing because I just don't think it's real effective. It wouldn't have been for me. I'd have just been sitting there thinking of what to do wrong next. <laughs> he just cooked my butt. I mean, really, I'm just telling you. And he said, if you do something wrong, I'm going to get you. But if you do something wrong and you don't own up to it, you're getting a double dose. Because he taught me this. If you can't do nothing else, you can take responsibility for your actions because nobody else in the world is responsible for you. But it's dead. We killed it. And that passed away because we assassinated reason. Common sense. It's dead. Look around you, folks. There is no more common sense. We killed it. And how in the world can we expect to do anything right if we don't exercise just a little good old common sense? I am thankful to be in this area because I can tell you, I've been all over the world, as Herbert said. At this point, five continents, 22 countries. And I'll tell you, there's still a little bit of good old common sense around here. But it's dead in most of the world, and it's dying around here. Because even good old country folk who know better are starting to turn their brain off and disengage before they make decisions. And those decisions have consequences, each and every one. And so this week, we will either choose to bury or to revive righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason. Because they're either dead or dying. And it's our fault. We can pass it off on anybody else, but did you miss that thing about responsibility? If just the folks who are in this church this morning, just the early service, would genuinely get a hold of these things and exercise righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason in our lives, in all of our choices and decisions, we will turn this world on its ear. 
It'll start right here in this community, and it'll be catching because people will see the blessings of the Lord rain down on people who are doing these five things, who have breathed life into these things, and revival will happen. I believe it with all my heart. But before we can bury or revive any of these things, it's need that we understand why they all died. Because they all died of the same root disease. And it's just like anything else. You can fix the symptoms, which is what I've been talking about. But if you don't take care of the root illness, you've done nothing because the symptoms will come back. We know this because of common sense. And I would submit to you that the main reason that all five of these things are dead or dying is because we have neglected the number one thing in life. And that is a relationship, a genuine relationship with God. And I would also submit to you that if we could fix this one thing, this one disease that is spreading throughout the church, I'm not talking about the lost, I'm talking about the church. If the church would get it right, that their relationship with God is first and foremost, fix that disease, then righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason would all come back to life and be radically different and change the world. But our relationship with God has taken a back seat. Look at Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 with me, if you will. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. As you turn to Matthew 22, just give you a little background. Jesus has been going around performing miracles, preaching, teaching, a radically different message than the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes had been teaching. He had been telling them that the only thing that really was going to fix what was going on in life, that was going to get them where they needed to be, was a relationship with God. And they didn't like it because, see, they were stuck on these 613 pharisaical laws, this Levitical law that they were trying to keep. And I'll tell you, I don't know about y'all, we have a hard time with those Ten Commandments that I preached about here in Revival just three years ago. Can you imagine thinking that you could keep all 613 of those Levitical laws and be perfect enough to enter into God's glory? Well, that's what they were striving for. They were religious and Jesus is trying to tell them, it ain't about religion because that's what man can do for God, which is a joke. It's about a relationship, which is what God has offered to man. And so Jesus is looking at them and they finally say, oh, Master, they're being very sarcastic, very condescending. Master, since you know it all, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? That's just like man, isn't it? Aren't we always looking for a shortcut? They're looking, and they've actually been debating, according to church history, for a while, trying to figure out which one of those 613 laws was the most important. And if I could just keep one, I'm good enough. Which one is it? Or their deceitful, wicked hearts are thinking these things. And so they say, okay, we're going to trip him up. We haven't been able to figure out in all of our grand wisdom. Certainly he's not going to figure it out either. And so they say, Master, what is the greatest law in all of the commandment? I love Jesus' response, so simple. You cannot leave here misunderstanding this. It's so simple. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And we're breaking it every day. It's no wonder righteousness, respect, reason, responsibility are dead because we're not even doing the one thing that Jesus said was most important. We're not focusing on a relationship with God. And it is the greatest commandment. The second one he said is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Well, let me tell you this. You cannot possibly love these people sitting in the pews around you or your own family members or anyone else the way you're supposed to until you get number one right. It's foundational. Your relationship with God has got to be paramount in your life. And yet we are in the vein of Malachi these days and giving God our leftovers. Revival will prove it. I've already hinted to this. And I'm not, look, I'm not trying to pressure you to be here. I promise you that. But I'm just here to tell you, if you are serious about being revived, you will be at revival. You will hear the Word of God so that you can get closer to Him. But in Malachi, we find that all he's getting from them, including the priests, are leftovers. He had demanded perfect sacrifices, the best of the best, the first fruits, the foremost of what they had, and yet they were giving him meat that is spoiled and scrapped. What do we do with scraps and meat that is spoiled these days around here? We throw them to the dogs. We do. And that's what we're throwing to God as our despicable, stinking, rotten leftovers. We're giving God what's left after we do what we want and what we feel like we want to get into. It's the truth, folks. I hear it all the time. Well, we're not going to be there Sunday. We've got a ball tournament. I've heard it at Antioch. I said, if you've got a ball tournament that's more important than the, the, the house of God, you've got your priorities mixed up. I've made several of our softball players pretty upset. In fact, some of them have left in good riddance because if a ball's more important than God, they really don't belong on our membership roles to begin with. And I could say that about anything else in the world. Fill in the blank. You know what your idols are. And you know what God has taken second place to, whether it be a TV, whether it be sports or fishing, whatever it is. Oh, I hear this all the time, man. I can get out on that lake and I can be drowning a worm and me and God's got a beautiful sanctuary out there. I'm having church baloney. Go on and believe that lie. I enjoy that kind of thing too. But listen, I'm going to tell you something. If anything, and look, I'm not against these things. Oh, gosh, he's a, he's a sports basher and a fishing basher. Look, I like them all. But in the right context, God's got to be number one. And because God has become number two, three, four, five, six, somewhere way down the line and getting our leftovers, our relationship with Him is dying because only what you feed lives. Are you feeding and nurturing and nourishing your relationship with God? Further, if you look at Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now, as I read this, understand that for years and years and years, decades, centuries, the great scientific minds and thinkers and philosophers of the world have been trying to figure out the meaning of life. You ever heard that? I just want to know the meaning of life. It's right here. Ecclesiastes 12:13. This is Solomon. And what was Solomon known for? Wisdom. He said he was the wisest man that had ever lived. And the way that reads in the Hebrew, not only was the wisest man that ever lived, but the wisest one that ever would live. And I believe that as I meet some folks today. But nonetheless, Solomon is writing this as a man of wisdom, a man of knowledge and application. Because that's what wisdom is. It ain't a bunch of head knowledge. It's being able to take head knowledge and through reason and common sense, exercise it correctly. He ends this book of Ecclesiastes, and he's the guy who said, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I mean, he's done it all. He was filthy rich. He had all these wives and stuff, which makes me wonder about the wisdom. But anyway, that's another story for a different time. But he's been there. He's done that. He's heard it all, seen it all. And he says, let me just get to the point. And he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And folks, that word whole means let's get to the bottom of it all, every bit of it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I want you to think about that. That's the meaning of life. 
What Solomon is saying and what God allowed to be in his word here is factual. The bottom line to life is that we fear, and that word fear is love, respect, honor God and keep his commandments. And if you're not doing that one thing, you are not fulfilling your number one purpose in life. And if we're not getting that right, is anything else going to work? It is time for us to begin to redevelop our relationship with God. How do we do that? Well, I would submit to you the first thing is get into his love letter and read it often. I remember dating my wife about 22 years ago. We've been together about 22 years now, married for 19. I better get that right when she shows up for the next service. Together 22, married 19. We dated for a few years, got married, and I'm telling you, I love her more today than I loved her then. I don't say that to get brownie points. She ain't here, and y'all might not see her. Just the truth. I love her with all my heart. She is the second greatest thing that ever happened to me aside from my salvation. It is just the truth. You want to know the definition of grace? Look at me standing beside her sometimes. That's grace. Because grace is an undeserved gift, and she is that to me. But you know, we were like every other young couple. We passed these little things called love letters. Y'all ever do that? Do you have any love letters from when y'all first started dating? Some of you thinking, man, they didn't even have paper back then. I sure did. <laughs> Herbert's got a piece of slate where Deborah carved out some things to him. But uh, we got these love letters, and I happen to copy one that I had from her. It's too precious to me to bring with me and have a chance of losing. Look, hey, Norma. Look, I, I, I'm sorry, y'all. Norma's in the corner over here, and I just love I had to speak to with them. And Jackie. But I brought one of these love letters. I didn't want to lose the original, so I brought this. And listen to this. This is from my wife to me. I can't make this up, but this is good stuff. Thank you for being a wonderful husband, for being a warm, caring dad, for being the friend I can always depend on. And I like it. She underlined always three times. (laughs) Throughout all the good times and all the bad. Thank you for showing so much understanding, respecting the way I feel, for doing your best in your own special way to help my dreams become real. Man, that's good stuff, ain't it? Starting to think she likes me a little bit. Thank you for the special family times, for joy, she underlined joy too, that I've known as your wife. And most of all, thank you with all of my heart for being the love of my life. And then she finishes with this. I am so very happy, and I am so very thankful for you. You keep me grounded, and I feel so loved and appreciated. I pray you know how much I love you, my love, my wife, my sweetie. I love you, Missy. Big old smiley face. I said, why did he just read that to me? Because I just like hearing it. It makes me feel like somebody. <laughs> I don't know what it did for y'all, but it made me feel all warm and fuzzy. But you know what? I need sometimes to be reminded of how special I am to her. I need sometimes to remember what I mean to her, especially when I've done something really meat-headed and need just a little bit of grace. I'll pull that out and remind her, hey, you used to love me this much. (laughs) The point is, our relationship is paramount. It's important. We've got to be on the same page. And in order to do that, I go back and read them love letters and remember, she does the same thing. I want to know what it is that she thinks is special so I can keep doing it. You know, men are a lot like dogs. Ladies, let me give you a hint for a happy marriage. Men are just like dogs. If they do even the slightest thing right, reward them for it, they're going to do it again. Just like a dog. They'll do anything for a treat, and they'll keep doing it for the treat. That's a freebie. I just threw that in for you. But you need to develop 
develop and nurture your relationship. And one of the biggest ways of doing it is reading this love letter that God gave you. So let's do that real quickly this morning. You probably think, good gracious, I thought he was done. No, we're just getting started. How much more time have I got, Herbert? Till I'm done? Okay, all right. Moving right along. Turn to James chapter 4. I have told you that all of these five things we're going to talk about this week died because we neglected a relationship with God. They died because we didn't nurture them. We didn't read the love letter. We didn't know or either didn't care enough to do what was necessary to get it right. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you want things to be right in your relationship with God, it is very, very simple. You need to nurture your relationship with God, read the love letter, and join the James 4 Club. So James chapter 4 will give us those things that we need to develop and nurture our relationship. And if you'll do this, and don't come back the rest of the week, if you'll just do this, I promise you things will be better and life will be breathed back into these other comrades that have fallen. As we read James 4, remember this is the brother of Jesus. He knew him personally and in the beginning said, I don't believe this guy. But he came to understand Jesus really was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And so he speaks with first-hand knowledge and with a spiritual knowledge of who Jesus is and what his ministry was. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to him these things and showing us how we can draw closer to God. Verse 7 and following. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You want to get closer to God? Join the James 4 Club and just read verses 7 through 10. Learn it, live it, and things will change radically because God will become first and foremost in your life and everything else will follow. Didn't he say that in Matthew 6, 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Loose translation, as I read that, if you put God first, all the details fall into place. I believe that. And this is how you do it. Practical knowledge from the book of James of how to do that. You know, we join every kind of club in the world. How many of y'all, just raise your hands as I say these things, are a member of the Vic Club at one of these grocery stores or have a Food Line MVP card? Nobody's got any of this stuff? Come on, y'all save some money. All kind of clubs. Let's see, what else? The Hair Club for Men. They kicked Herbert out of that. Um, how many got a Facebook account or Twitter or FaceTime or Snapchat? Man, I could go on and on and on. There's so many things, so many clubs that we could join. Man, there's Civitan, Ruritan, Woodsman of the World. There's clubs everywhere. I remember flying to, over to Africa one time, and I, they'd come around with this thing about joining the Sky Club. And I said, well, how much is it and what do I get out of it? Because that's first thing we want to know how much it well it's 54 dollars a year and basically you get to upgrade one seat and you know get all kind of little perks you get uh, special beverages i think you get alcoholic beverages for free i'm like well that don't help me a bit i said one thing i want to know i might be willing to join this here sky club of yours if i can get a pillar bigger than a doggone tic tac i mean you got to fly for 18 hours to africa on a pillar that looks like that she's like no we don't upgrade pillars all the pillars are the same i said never mind i ain't joining but we join every kind of club in the world because of the benefits, right? Well, that's not a bad thing, as long as you join the James 4 Club. What we will find if we join this club is that the benefits are out of this world, and the premium's already been paid. 
Jesus paid it on the cross. All we got to do is just keep doing those things that membership requires in order to be blessed, get safety from the enemy, and have a clean soul and conscience. Boy, doesn't that sound good? You want to be blessed? Say amen. You want safety from the enemy? Say amen. You want God happy with you? Just say amen. I tell you, I want that more than anything. And having that clean soul and conscience, boy, that's just perks. In summary, you will receive God's grace and a closer relationship with the Creator of the universe. We need to get starstruck by God once again. I see all these folks around the world that get starstruck about these singers and stuff. I mean, think about all these folks. If Michael Jackson had to come in here several years back, some of you would have went nuts. Now, most of you would have run out the back door screaming with me, but some of you would have went nuts. The man was talented. And then you think about old Elvis. Man, if Elvis had come through the back doors of this church 40, 50 years ago, man, the whole place would have passed out, men and women alike. I don't know why I know that. I watched it on TV. Man, we idolize these people, and if they come around, we're like, oh, my gosh. When are we going to do that with the God of the universe? This is how. As we read these verses, look at verse 7. The first thing you need to do to have the proper relationship with a holy and sovereign God is submit yourself to God. That sounds like a dirty word in this day and time. In 2014, you say submit to a lady, you might as well smack her in the face. I am a strong American woman. I don't have to submit. That sounds a little bit like slavery or bondage. Oh, baloney. Jesus submitted to the Father. Did it make him any less God? No way. It was just an understanding of our roles, an understanding of responsibilities in the plan. Your responsibility is to understand that he's God and you're not. He's God. You want to have a relationship with Him. Submit to Him. Willingly accept and fall in line. That's what that word means. Fall in line behind somebody worth falling in line behind. And let me tell you, there's only one that is worthy of falling in line behind. Everybody in this room, everybody that ever stood in a pulpit, everybody who ever existed has failed you in some way or will. Why? Because they're imperfect and they're humans. Quit holding them to that standard that they've got to please you 100% of the time. They can't do it. And you're not doing it for them, so fair is fair. But God will never fail you. God is the winner of the whole of history. And if you knew that you could go into battle, the worst battle there was, because you had no choice, you got to battle for your life, and yet you could look on the other side of it and see who won and see why they won and see who was at the head of the fight. Wouldn't you want to be behind that one, that general, that commander? Well, I do, and God is that one. So we need to submit to him willingly, fall in line, understanding that God is our commander-in-chief. He's the one that can fix the situation we are in, not anybody in Washington or anywhere else. The second thing, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How many, how many of you folks does the devil mess with? If you have not been tempted this morning, let me back it up at least today. If you've not been tempted in the last 24 hours to think, do, or say something that is wrong, that is sinful, would you please lie and raise your hand? Because some of y'all walked into church this morning. I saw you. She is wearing my dress. Well, let me just tell you, it looks better on her anyway, so get over it. You know, that's, that's evil thinking. That's, that's jealousy. That's junk. We are all tempted by the devil on a regular basis, and he has helped us kill relationships with God, proper relationships in life. He's helped us kill righteousness, reason, respect, and responsibility. 
We need to get him off our back, don't we? There's one way. Resist him. He is not more powerful than the one who indwells you. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Do you believe the word or not? Because what that's saying is God is not going to let any temptation befall you that you can't get away from, that he won't give you a way out. And the way out is just resisting him. If somebody came to me right now, and I'm just going to throw it right out here, and I, I, I might make somebody mad, it don't matter to me, but you know what's in the news right now. It is very likely that in the coming weeks or months, Herbert or I may be asked to do a homosexual wedding. Very likely, because now the law says that people can come and ask. And it is very likely if we don't, we could have a lawsuit or something else on our hands. But I'm going to tell you right now, this old boy is ready to resist. In fact, I'd resist a heterosexual couple that I don't believe God put together. I, I don't have to marry anybody. I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do. And we've got to stand on our two feet, square our shoulders, submit it to the Lord and say, no. Not just to that. That's just the, the flavor of the week. It'll be something else in a few weeks. But right now, that's one of the big ones. But I'm going to say no. I'm just going to tell you. Y'all might have to bring me a cake with a file in it to the jail or whatever. I, it don't matter to me. I can stand and resist. You can too. Because whether it be that example or a million others, you fill in the blank. If it's wrong according to this book, it's wrong now and throughout eternity and will always be wrong because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So is truth. Truth is not a fluid principle. We need to look the devil square in the eye and say, go to hell. That's the one time you can say that. Don't say that to nobody else. Say, look, I'm not doing it. It's pretty appealing. i got to give it to you, Satan. That's pretty appealing. That looks pretty good right there. But God said, no, get on. Submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the devil. As you do so, it also says in verse 8, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. What is it saying? If you will draw near unto God, he's going to draw near unto you. Same thing. Let me just bring my wife back into this thing. You're going to see me with my arm around her this week, my hand on her hand this week. And if I'm not holding hers and got my arm around her, she's going to be doing that to me. What I have learned is if I draw near to my wife and I treat her right and make her feel loved and special, she's going to get closer to me. God's going to do the same thing exponentially more. Mark my word. He said it right there. If you will draw near unto me, spend time with me, develop this relationship, I'm going to draw nearer and nearer unto you. Simple stuff so far. Everybody get it? Let's move on. After we have submitted, after we've resisted to, resisted to the devil and his wiles, we've drawn near unto God, we need to get clean. There's some dirty hands and hearts in here. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hearts. It's covering the inside and the outside. This is a reference to the priest cleansing their hands before they go in for worship. If they were getting clean, just like you did this morning. Most of you, as I hugged your neck and shook your hand, smelled pretty good this morning. Most of us. Some of you's right guard done went left, but that's all right. We'll be all right. No, seriously speaking, though, you got gussed up this morning. You got clean because you wanted to enter into the house of the Lord looking good, feeling good, clean. That's what it's talking about. Clean it up. But in a larger sense, clean up your act. Does the world look at you and say, there goes one of them Christians, before you ever open your mouth? Man, it's just like old Charles Spurgeon said. Witness to everyone, every way, every how you can, and if necessary, use words. We ought not have to open our mouth for people to notice something different because our actions 
shows that we are different, that we are near to God, that we're resisting the devil and those temptations that he's put in front of us, and that we are submitting to God and his will. People ought to know. Clean up the act. There are outward sins that you know you have, things that just don't look like God's people, like telling little old half-dirty jokes at the water fountain. Or saying things that should never come out of a Christian's mouth. Does not our Bible say, I will let no vile thing escape my lips? We need to get a handle on the cursing and the junk and the things that just don't look like Christ. Otherwise, quit wearing His name because you're embarrassing the kingdom. But clean up the outside. And He says, cleanse your hearts too. Well, how do you do that? You really don't want to reach down in there and pull that thing out and try to clean it off. I've seen that done. I worked at the VA for many, many years and watched many open-heart surgery. I've seen them take a man's heart and lay it over to the side, start cleaning out in there to make sure they got all the gauzes and sponges out, and put that thing back in there and watch it start squeezing again. Take them off bypass and it just starts working. You don't want to do that. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is not only look like Christ, be like Christ. You see, you're not going to be be able to do the first one without the second one. Unless it is the overflow of who you are inside, your actions will eventually belie you. I'm telling you, they're going to reveal to people who you really are because you're not going to be able to keep up the charade unless it's inside. Make sure that you know that you know that you know that you are saved, you belong to the King of Kings, and that is deep-seated in your heart, and all you want to do is please Him and be close to Him. You do that, the actions come easier. Moving right along, after the purification, after the drawing near, after the resisting the devil and submitting to God, then we understand that we need to recognize where we've messed up and be sorry about it. I think about so many times, my my kids, I've got kids, as as Herbert said earlier, I've got a 15-year-old that I really don't think he's ever done anything wrong. And you probably think I'm making that up, but he's just a good boy. And then I've got a 9-year-old who's redheaded and on fire. He don't do nothing bad. But he just tries everything. You tell him no, he quits immediately. But you've got to tell him no with everything in a room. Because he's going to try it all. So I have to get on this little fellow sometimes. But he's done figured me out. And I had to figure him out. He'll do it. Immediately come to me. Diddy, I'm sorry. And try to kiss me on the cheek. That's good. That's good. But it ain't enough. I told him. told him just yesterday. I said, son, sorry is not enough unless it's genuine. It's just a word, unless it's genuine. And that's what we get into in verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Well, that sounds pretty heavy. It's because it is. If we as Christians want our relationship to God to be right, we've got to go to Him and quit saying, Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I didn't mean to. Knowing that grace is going to forgive us, we've got to go genuinely sorry that we did something to affront, to offend to embarrass the sovereign of the universe. Man, get it right in your heart that you're sorry about this. Have a genuine, deep desire for repentance and repent. And don't go back to that same old junk. And then finally, in verse 10, you want your relationship to be what it's supposed to be? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. And this will be the beginning of revival. So are you ready? Are you ready for revival? Are you ready to breathe new life into those fallen comrades of righteousness, of reason, of respect, of responsibility, those things that we had a hand in murdering? If you are, begin 
by drawing closer to the Lord this morning, submitting yourself to Him, saying, I will resist the devil. I'm sorry for who I've been and how I've been, and I am going to not be religious, but I'm going to work on my relationship with God. Are you ready for that? One of you. I heard somebody. Are you ready for that? Do you want things to be right? Do you want our nation to come back to life? It's on you now. Be here this week as we talk about these five fallen comrades and how we breathe life into them, but begin with this, your responsibility with God. You do that, and I promise you that we will eradicate this disease that has killed so many. Second Chronicles 15.2 as I close. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, The Lord is with you while you be with him. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. This is speaking to the Israelites saying, if you want a close relationship with the Lord, that's exactly what he wants too. Come get it. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning and the opportunity to open your word and to speak simple truth. There's nobody in here that didn't get it. It's just a matter of whether they're going to do anything with it. I pray that revival will begin right here, right now, as we all commit ourselves to a deeper, more intimate relationship with the only one that matters, you. Father, we can't get anything else right. You said it. The whole duty of man, the whole purpose of our lives is to have a relationship with you, to love you, to fear you, respect you, and to do your will. Jesus said it was the first and greatest commandment to love you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and our strength. And yet we're wondering why the world is going to hell in a handbasket when we are not doing this most important thing. Forgive us, God. Help us to genuinely lament, to weep and to mourn within our souls for what we have done, for what we've become. We know you intended to look down into the world and see your church, but you didn't intend to look down into the church and see the world like you do today. Help us fix it. Help it to begin with each one of us, myself included. Father, help us to know this invitation is real simple. That we draw near unto you so that you can draw near unto us. I beg that that be what happens here if nothing else happens. And I pray it in the precious name of Jesus who made it possible.